What is 65% oxygen, 18% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 3% nitrogen and costs less than a dollar? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Joyce. Dr. Joyce is a senior consultant with the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, California. Dr. Joyce's recent work has been Impact of Medicare Part D, Drug Benefit Design, Smoking Cessation, and Cost of Disease. Today we'll be discussing if healthcare can be cost effective and still be in the patient's best interest. Hi, Dr. Joyce. Glad to have you joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. My pleasure. As clinicians, we're being pressured to practice cost-effective medicine. How does an economist value a treatment, and what makes something cost-effective? That's a good question. I think we're, the field is still trying to debate these issues, but I think there's been a historical legacy of valuing life in certain parameters, and, and the standard today is, is a life saved cost less or more than $100,000, for example. And part of this is a, is a way to try and ration, should we invest in this technology or another technology in trying to quantify the, what we think are the clinical benefits and the cost effectiveness of, of one intervention versus another. And I think that $100,000 is somewhat arbitrary, but that's sort of a standard metric that's used more for comparative purposes, I think, than sort of an absolute number. Yeah, I don't want to blow you out of the water, but on the... Uh... Indiana University School of Medicine webpage, they pegged the value of the human body at $45 million, with bone marrow costing $23 million based on 1,000 grams at $23,000 a gram. So, I mean, it seems like what we pick as cost-effective is really hangs on that number, doesn't it? To some degree. But again, I do think an important metric is to say, what do we think it's worth when we're deciding upon which technologies to invest in and not to hold that number an absolute. And when I was referring to $100,000, that's typically to save one year of life for someone at a decent quality of life. And that will typically translate into a sort of a, a lifetime value of anywhere in the range of 6 to $8 million for the value of, of someone's life over the course of a lifetime. How is that come up with? I mean, I know we don't have time to go into large economic models, but there's something I read about it's called the standard gamble. Could you explain that? Typically what you would do, there are these, and these are somewhat of hypotheticals that you'll present to individuals, and you'd say, how much would you be willing to pay to extend your life a certain amount of time, for example, in perfect health or less than perfect health? Um, and, and you try and tease out what people's willingness to pay is to extend their life under these different states. Another alternative might be to say, um, historically this came from the ESRD, the end-stage renal disease, when we're thinking of how much does, should we cover this under Medicare, how much does it cost to extend someone on kidney dialysis life? And at the time it was $50,000. And so that became the benchmark for a while. Another way we typically might do it is to try and infer from market behavior. We're looking at your likelihood of using seatbelts. We know that reduces your probability of dying by a certain percentage. And then we can infer, in essence, how much you're willing to take risks or, or to improve your safety and then quantify that in, in dollar terms. And remarkably, those estimates kind of come out in the same range. And that's where we get this $100,000 people are typically willing to invest for an additional year of life. Can you give a concrete example of where this type of modeling for cost-effective care supports the patient's best interest where it's been applied and patients really have said, you know, this is in my best interest. I'm getting taken care of properly. 
to be honest with you, this is a form of rationing. Whether people like it or not, we do that implicitly in this country. Other countries do it more formally, but we do it through price mechanisms in this country. So from an individual patient's perspective, they may not have access to a particular technology if it's been deemed not to be cost-effective. So you can always find patients who will think this is crude and arbitrary and not fair. But from an economist's point of view, we have to look at the world as there are scarce resources, and we have to make decisions about what to invest, what technologies are worth investing in, what the government should pay for or not pay for. And that's why sort of this whole arena has developed. I think from a societal perspective, we could say, I think it's better to invest in technology X, which is going to save a life at $40,000 than this other technology that's going to save one life on average at a cost of $50 million. So again, it, it really does come down to a relative versus an absolute. You mentioned uh, basically, and again, the government certainly is the biggest payer for health care. Um, you have expertise in the area of Medicare Part D and drug benefit design. Cost of medications is certainly astronomical, both to society and to individuals. Uh, one approach I've heard is uh, using cost sharing. Is that something that you've looked at? Oh, in great detail. And, and, and there are sort of two different worlds. I think one was the sort of the traditional oral pharmaceuticals, your statins to lower your cholesterol, or your blood pressure medication. And what we've seen over the past decade is employers and the government sort of making people pay higher cost sharing, typically a copayment that's now more linked towards the cost of the drug. So in the old days, you used to pay 2 or $5 for a 30-day prescription. Now, firms and, and the government are saying, well, if it's a generic drug, it might have a 5 or $10 copay. If it's a preferred brand, a, a branded drug that we've cut a good deal on, it might be $30. And if it's a non-preferred brand, it might be 50 or $60 copay. And what it's trying to do is make consumers or patients more price sensitive and then steer them towards lower cost drugs. In some ways, that's not a bad uh, idea. And in general, I think economists like sending price signals to say, you know, a branded drug does cost society more than a generic drug, whether the true production costs are different. And we want consumers to be aware of that when they make their decisions. But there is some irrationality to it, too. For example, uh, an antidepressant such as hypothetically Prozac might end up on that second tier with a $20 copay or a third tier with a $50 copay depending on sort of negotiations with a manufacturer and a health plan, and it has nothing to do with the patient. And so the drug they're taking can sort of arbitrarily seem more or less expensive, and that bothers consumers and patients. I'd like to welcome those who have just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Joyce, senior economist at the Rand Corporation. We're discussing, can healthcare be made cost-effective without harming patients? Today's Wall Street Journal reported, apropos to what you just mentioned, pharmacy benefit manager Express Scripts agreed to pay $9.5 million to settle allegations that it asked doctors to switch drugs primarily so it could get bigger rebates from pharmaceutical companies. They had previously settled a $38.5 million multi-state settlement in February. Doesn't this concern you? I mean, here are doctors being forced, patients being forced to use medication so the pharmacy company can make more money? There have been some clearly some less than ethical practices in this industry, and I think that's why sort of the public's perception that people are more skeptical of pharmaceutical manufacturers and PBMs in general. I think there's some truth to that, and I also think people forget the, the value that these companies have created and the life-saving technologies they've created. But getting to that, I do think 
the PBMs, which are the pharmacy benefit managers, which are sort of middlemen between the, the manufacturers and, and uh, the health plans and physicians. I think people are resentful when the clinical decisions are, are not being made by their doctor. The PBMs, these pharmacy benefit managers, don't have to act necessarily in the best interest of the firm or client that they're representing, but they claim they do add efficiency and they do lower prices. They, they negotiate rebates and, and reductions in prices with manufacturers. So overall, in the big picture, they save society some money, but the, clearly there is some scope for them not to, to act in the best interest of all other parties, but to act in their own self-interest. Medicare Part D, what has that been the impact on healthcare economics, and does it need to be tuned up, refined? Where do we go? Really, I think there was lots of doom and gloom prior to 2006 when Medicare first introduced the drug benefits. It's gone better than anticipated by almost everyone's um, perspective. There are a few warts and there are still a few problems in the program. There's the infamous donut hole where people lose coverage for a period of time. But overall, I think the statistics say that now more than 90% of seniors have drug coverage at least as good as the, the Medicare Part D benefit, which is a decent benefit. And I, and I do think we have to, there are some warts, there are some minor things that could be changed, but I do think we have to ask, what do we want insurance for? And it really is to protect you from catastrophic or very high expenses and at least Part D and most insurance plans do that. And so despite its, its minor flaws, it really does accomplish the goal of providing most seniors with drug coverage and catastrophic coverage. I also read recently that Medco, one of the pharmacy benefit companies, has adopted a policy by which they're going to provide the cheapest drug first and wait until you fail before you get the more expensive medication. The concern, again, is the high cost of some of these biotech drugs, the oncology drugs. Um, from an economic standpoint, from your work, is this a reasonable approach, or is it uh, cost-effectiveness run amok? Uh, it, it could be a little of both. It depends how it's implemented. In, in theory, it's not a bad idea to try and say, if we think a lower-cost therapy is likely to be effective for the vast majority of patients, then it may not be a bad policy. I think a critical thing is how it's implemented. Is it easy for doctors to circumvent that rule? If doctors think, no, I know this patient is not going to do well on the older, cheaper medications, they really do need the best and the, and the, the latest, is it easy for a doctor to overwrite that? Uh, and then I think it really depends on the type of drug or the therapeutic class it's treating. In some classes, a lot of the drugs are very similar. And so steering the patient to one drug versus another is probably not going to have any big clinical effect. In other therapeutic classes, there's a lot of heterogeneity, meaning a drug may be effective to one person and may not, that same drug may not be effective to another, and you want doctors to be able to prescribe broadly within that class. In that case, sort of mandating that doctors go to the cheaper drug first when you know, there's a decent chance it may not work on an individual patient, that seems inefficient and, and clearly not uh, beneficial from a patient's perspective. Now, when you said you know works on a majority of the patients, would that be to use that quality-adjusted life year, would that be works on a majority with equal efficacy in terms of the quality of life, their life for that next year? Um, more of does this drug do what it's, it's intended to do for the majority of patients? Let me give you a quick example. Over-the-counter ibuprofen, for example, or any of the pain relievers, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, they work quite well in reducing pain and inflammation for the vast majority of patients. The only concern is some patients are going to have 
problems if they take it on an empty stomach. It can eat away at their, their lining. And so what happened is there was a big trend towards Vioxx and Celebrex, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They basically do the same thing in clinical trials, but they don't eat away at your stomach. And they cost maybe you know 10 or 20 times more than the over-the-counter stuff you can buy. So the question is, do you want everyone going out and buying the $100 bottle of Celebrex and Vioxx? Or do you want to start them out on ibuprofen and tell them you should try to take this with food, and then basically it's the same drug? And so, again, I think there is some rationality of trying to push patients towards drugs we think are equally effective and have modest side effects and to educate them about how to take these drugs rather than just saying, here, go after the more expensive one, which costs society more money. I'd like to thank Dr. Jeffrey Joyce, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing how to value the cost of health. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I invite you to enjoy our on-demand program library. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and register with promotion code RADIO to receive six months of free streaming audio for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health. I'm Dr. Spiro Karras from Emory Sports Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. You're listening to the first national radio channel created specifically for medical professionals, ReachMD XM 157.